Um, our text today is from First uh, Samuel, and uh, we're going back to the first two chapters of First Samuel, first two chapters of First Samuel. Uh, I'm going to talk about the families of Elkanah and Eli, and um, mix in some family and Father's Day wisdom as we look at those two men and uh, the and other subjects that the text highlights for us. As you turn to uh, 1 Samuel, I will have uh, a lot of the scripture up on the screen this morning, but as, as one of the first things that glares at us uh, when you look at the life of Elkanah is that he had two wives, and so I would, I would have to say that he had double trouble in his life. And, and anywhere you see that in, in the Old Testament, basically that is the case. Um, and it was something that was permitted under Jewish law. Um, and not all that uncommon in that day. Um, but if you went and looked at all the different case studies in the Old Testament, um, it gives us all the rationale for why it's not permitted in Christian circles. <laughs> if you just go and look at one example in the Old Testament and then look at the next and then look at the last, they, it, it caused a problem every single time in the Old Testament. Um, because every man that had more than one wife had a favorite wife in every case in the Old Testament. How would you like to be the non-favorite wife? And what would you do with that? You would do exactly what they did. And there were always a big problem with it. So, um, man, just stay happy, married to your one favorite wife. That is the wisdom of the New Testament for you. <laughs> um, clearly, Elkanah's Al- favorite wife was Hannah. Apparently, he had married Peninnah uh, in order to have children because he couldn't have children with Hannah. And so um, every year, Elkanah would take his family and they would go to Shiloh. Uh, remember, King David was the one that moved the temple um, from Shiloh to um, Jerusalem. And so back in the days of the judges, uh, the temple where they worshipped or the tabernacle was always at Shiloh. And so Elkanah would take his two wives and uh, Peninnah's children and they would all go to uh, Shiloh uh, for their annual sacrifice and offering. And um, that, was, that was always kind of an interesting trip. Um, first of all, um, Hannah always would end up crying because Peninnah saw it as a great opportunity to just irritate Hannah. And she would just say whatever she could just to get under um, Hannah's skin. And she, every year, the, this one great annual trip, and every year it turned into this feud between Hannah and Peninnah, and Peninnah was always poking Hannah to see what she could accomplish and cause her some misery. And of course, it's always on the spiritual trip. Some of you, uh, you know, have young children, and you know that you can just about count on Sunday morning driving to church being one of the worst trips of the whole week. <laughs> and sometimes for us, it was just between the house and the church. <laughs> but, but, you know, it seems like when you're going to church, sometimes that is when things can be the most frustrating. 
But when they would get there and it was time for the sacrifice, you would slaughter your animal. The priest would get his share. The Lord had uh, portions of the, the, the sacrifice that were designated for the Lord. The priest had some sac- portions that were designated for them. And then the family that made the sacrifice would also get to share in the sacrifice. And you would split that out evenly according to the number of people in your family. And so Peninnah's, uh, Peninnah would get a larger portion of meat because of her children. And Alcana would give that to her. And then he would come to his favorite wife, Hannah, and who was by this time crying. And he would try to comfort her, and one of the things he would do because he loved her is give her a double portion (laughs) for herself. She should only got one portion, but he would give her a double portion. And uh, so all of that is going on on this trip. And one of the interesting things about the, the name Hannah is it means woman of grace. And as you look at this text, Hannah never... um, pokes Peninnah back. She is always on the receiving end of being irritated. She never really does anything back in exchange except for she weeps. And she cries and and Alcana tries to comfort her. Um, And and so that's just interesting to watch. But one time, one year, they go to Shiloh for this... um, for the sacrifice, and that is a particular bad year for Hannah, and she really cries out to the Lord, and she um, cries out, and Eli the priest is watching, and he's he's old, but he's not blind yet. He's watching her in her bitterness of soul, and John Bunyan uh, said this, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than it is to have words without a heart. I want, to, I want you to catch that. In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Now, some of us, as we deal with prayer, especially in public settings, we can get real nervous. And I, I just want to affirm again um, that it, when you pray, never ever be concerned about what anyone else thinks. You're not praying to them anyway. And it doesn't matter what they think. God is the only one who really cares. And what he cares about is not the perfection of your words. What he cares about is, are you talking to him about the things that are on your heart? In the way that you communicate. And if you can just relax and be as natural to who you are today, and that day at Shiloh, Hannah was in tears with bitterness of soul as she poured out her heart to God, and it didn't matter that the greatest spiritual man in in the nation of Israel did not approve of her prayer. God heard it, and God acted on it. Never, ever compare your prayers with anyone else. Pour out your heart like you are. That's what God cares about. She made a vow that day, and she made a vow um, in line with God's will. And as she did that, she 
um, asked God for two things and then she committed to God two things. She, she said, God, I want you to look on my misery. I want you to see how I'm feeling and, and that I, and then she said, and God, I want you to give me a son. And then she did something that was very difficult. She offered to give to the Lord that son if he would just give her a son. And she committed that that son would be a Nazarite, that he would never cut his hair, that he would never, uh, his lips would never touch alcohol, and, and that he would be raised and trained uh, to be a godly priest. Well, that was a prayer of great sacrifice, if you stop and think about it. I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm just a man, but I can't imagine that it would be, wouldn't it be easier to remain barren than to have a son who's taken away from you or given away by the age of three? I, I, I don't know, but it just seems to me that that would be a whole lot easier. Um, but here's a woman who says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you as soon as he's weaned. And then her prayer is also one of submission. She refers to herself in this passage in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 five different times as a servant of the Lord. Whatever your will is, God. You remember Mary in her prayer? Um, Lord, whatever you want, I am your servant. And that is the same um, heart that Hannah had as she prayed. Now, Hannah prayed for years. She had gone to Shiloh and she had prayed that same prayer for years. She had prayed at other uh, occasions throughout the year. Um, and God had not answered her prayer with a, a positive, with a yes. And the thing is, if God had answered her prayer earlier, Samuel would have been an ordinary child. Samuel never would have gone to serve in the priesthood. He probably would have never been a Nazarite. He probably, there would have been an entire generation of Israelites that would have lived under an evil, wicked enemy of oppressor and ruler. But instead, because God waited to answer her prayer until just the right time, Hannah was at that point where she said, God, if you will give me a child, I will give him back to you. And she didn't know that by giving him back that Samuel would be the one that would come to be a judge that would deliver Israel from their, from the Philistines and all of that. She had no idea of all that, but God's timing was just perfect there. Hmm. Eli looked at her though and it seemed to him like she was just drunk. And he was the highest spiritual leader in all of Israel. How would you like to be praying someday in the highest, you know, and have Billy Graham listening in, and then all of a sudden he rebukes you? Because your prayer wasn't good enough. <laughs> that would kind of set you back, wouldn't it? Here's Eli, and he just says, Hannah, what's wrong with you? You shouldn't be drunk. And Hannah takes that with grace and Hannah responds to him with assertiveness and she says, oh, you misunderstand. 
this is really what's in my heart and I'm just praying out what's in my heart. I am not drunk. And she she doesn't back away at all from her prayer or from her vow. She defends herself and Eli gives her her blessing. And that prayer that Hannah prayed changed the course of her life and of the entire uh, life of the nation of Israel. Soon, she conceives a son. And later, he is born, and she names him Samuel. And that means God has heard. God kept his end of the vow, and Hannah kept her end of the vow. And she cared for him until he was weaned, And she took uh, the boy to Eli again at Shiloh to dedicate him there. And she left him there for Eli to raise and to train up as a Nazarite. Now the interesting thing is about Elkanah at this. And most of this story is about Hannah. But the interesting thing in the background, the Jewish background, is that the man of the household could undo any vow that a woman made. That was just the way it was in Jewish culture. And so Elkanah, uh, as soon as he found out that Hannah had made this vow, that if God would give her a son, that um, she would give him back to the Lord, Elkanah had the option to say, no, I annul that vow. It is of no good. We are keeping that boy. That was just part of Jewish culture and law. And it's quite remarkable when you stop and think about it that Elkanah has the first son by his favorite wife. And he allows Hannah's vow to remain firm because you think back in Jewish culture how important the first son was in every family. They got half of the estate, regardless of how many other children came behind, they got half, and then everything else was divided. And and the first, you know, they were just uh, really elevated up in, in Jewish culture, and yet Elkanah has his first son by his favorite wife, and he allows Hannah's vow to stand firm. And says, yes, this is the vow you made. Yes, I will stand behind you. Yes, I will make this sacrifice. I will let my eldest child become a servant of the Lord and go to Shiloh and be raised by Eli the priest. When they go um, to drop Eli off and they make their sacrifice, it's interesting that Hannah... And I'm not going to read that for you, but if you read down the first ten verses of chapter two, Hannah does so not with regret and not with grief and not with defeat. For those ten verses, Hannah has nothing but praise and victory and delight at what God had done and how God had answered her prayer and how she was giving this son to the Lord. It's an amazing passage to read her delight in all of that. You know, God often begins solving some of the biggest problems by sending a baby. To put an exclamation point on it, God often sends babies to a barren woman to solve big problems. Sarah has Isaac, Rebecca has Jacob and Esau, Rachel has Joseph, Hannah has Samuel. 
And to solve the biggest problem in the entire world, God sent a baby to a virgin. (laughs) And I think the point that is being made there is that God is always the Lord of history. And God is solving problems even before you and I know we have them. God knew where Israel was going to be 20 years before it was there. And 20 years before Israel needed a redeemer, a judge that would come and make a difference and save them from the hands of the Philistines, God answered a prayer of a woman named Hannah. And she conceived. And 20 years later, Samuel was going to be a great judge in the nation of Israel. I want to remind you today, friends, whatever your problem is that you're dealing with, God's been on this long before you knew you had this problem. (laughs) God's been working on this for 20 years. Or in the case of Jesus, at just the right time, Galatians 4.4 says, He sent His Son at just the right time. God has a solution at just the right time for the problems that you face. Now here's one of the other problems that comes up in first and the first and second chapters of 1 Samuel. And that is that Elkanah and Hannah left a boy that was barely three years of age in the hands of a priest Eli who was somewhat compromised and whose sons were priests at that place who were absolutely corrupt and evil. And the question is, what do we do with that? What made Samuel different from Hophni and Phinehas? They're raised in the same environment. They're raised by the same man, Eli. What, you know, what makes the difference there? Well, I want to suggest several things. Um, First of all, I want to suggest to you that Elkanah and Hannah were faithful parents in their absence. They prayed, and they never forgot. And one of the ways that I know that is that Hannah made clothes. I think it's in chapter 2, verse 19. um, That Hannah made clothes, and she would come every year when they made the annual sacrifice and she would come with a whole new set of clothes to fit the growing boy. Now, in Jewish tradition, a new set of clothes meant an opportunity for spiritual growth also. And I can just see Hannah during that whole year as she sewed and as she put the suits together for the next year that she was praying intensely for that boy. And Alcanah... Uh, every time he thought of him and the boy he was missing, that he was lifting up prayers for Samuel. But their prayers and their continued activity, their continued involvement in his life from a distance um, was important. Thirdly, just simply the hand of God, that God's hand was upon Samuel. God had, you know, put his hand there upon him. And then here's here's a, a critical piece of information on Samuel, and that is simply that Samuel had dedicated himself to the Lord. There is a self-discipline in Samuel that you do not find in Hophni and Phinehas. 
Eli didn't even discipline his own son, so you wouldn't expect that he disciplined Samuel. So where does Samuel get his discipline from? How does Samuel stay proper in in the eyes of the Lord? Well, uh, first of all, Samuel just disciplined himself even from that early age, and set his heart on obeying the scriptures. And I, I want to say something to us today a little bit. Parents, you cannot always assume total responsibility for the actions of your children. <laughs> they have to bear responsibility for the actions that they make also. All of us make our decisions, and all of us are morally responsible And Samuel chose, even though he's in much the same environment that Hophni and Phinehas are in, Samuel made decisions that were right and pleasing in the Lord. And uh, while um, Eli's children simply did not, they chose an evil path. And so we we have to remember that Samuel chose the right path. I want us to contrast those two households for just a little bit. Elkanah honors God more than he honors his son. He's willing to give up his son to do what the Lord wants. Eli honors his sons and lets them do whatever they want, even if it dishonors God. Elkanah dedicated Samuel to God, but Eli, he trains his sons as priests. They do the work of ministry, but they've never dedicated themselves to God. Samuel ministers before God, but Hophni and Phinehas, they just abhor. It says they actually hated the offering and the sacrifice. Um, Samuel grows in favor with God. Hophni and Phinehas commit evil deeds. And then it's kind of interesting Samuel starts a new priestly line. And Eli ends the old priestly line. Um, Hophni and Phinehas end the priestly line through Aaron's fourth son, Ithamar. And um, Samuel begins a new line that God started when he wiped out um, Hophni and Phinehas. He starts a new line through the generations down all the way back to Aaron's third son, Eliezer. Samuel honored the tabernacle. But Hophni and Phinehas got jealous of the part of the sacrifice that belonged wholly to the Lord, and they started taking that (laughs) from what was the Lord's because they didn't like what the Lord had given to them. They wanted a different piece of meat than what the Lord had assigned to them. So they took what belonged to the Lord, ate that, and gave the Lord some leftovers. They had no respect for that at all. And then there were women volunteers that served at the entrance to the tabernacle. And they, uh, those two men started seducing the women right there at the entrance of the tabernacle. Samuel invites God's blessing in his life, but Hophni and Phinehas invite God's judgment. Now, John Maxwell writes about this passage with Eli and um, his sons and talks about how he's a success as a priest, but he's a parent as 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 a 
as a parent, he's a failure that led to his downfall. And he talks about four different points. His emphasis, his expectation, his example, and his entanglements. And I just want to say as I go into a couple of things here, um, at least two of my kids are here this morning. And um, so they, they know full well that I haven't done this very well. <laughs> so I'm preaching to you uh, from what I've learned from trial and error and, and a lot of mistake. But first of all, emphasis, Eli taught other people about God, but he did not teach his own family. Secondly, expectation. Eli thought that his sons would just catch it, that they would just get it because they were at Shiloh, because they were at church. And friends, I want to I say to you, you cannot trust that the church will get God into your children. You cannot trust that a Christian school will do that. You have to take personal responsibility for the upbringing and the rearing of your children. Bring them to school, Christian school. Bring them to the church. But then take personal responsibility at home. Set the expectation uh, that you live it at home. The example, um, live it at home, what you teach at work. And then entanglements. Eli was so focused on his work that he was blind to his failure with his family. Dan Reeland teaches the three A's of parenting. And um, he talks about, first of all, being available. Uh, and that means through time and through touch. Um, those two things are, are very important. I love this quote. We don't know who said it. I uh, haven't been able to find that out. But he said, you can, you can rarely schedule quality time with your kids. Quality time occurs randomly within the quantity of time you schedule. The older I get, the more convinced that is true. Um, and I wish I'd have recognized that a lot sooner in my life. Uh, you, you can't just schedule quality time. It happens occasionally in the quantity of time that you uh, schedule for it. Secondly, he says the second A is to be affirming. Um, Benjamin West was a great artist, and one day he decided as a young boy that he was going to paint a portrait of his own sister while his mother was away. And he got all kinds of paint out um, on the kitchen table, and he spilled lots of it on the table and on the chairs and on the floor and got paint all over himself. And his mother came home while he was still in, the, in painting his this piece. And instead of scolding him, she looked down at him and she said, Ben, that's the most beautiful picture of your sister I've ever seen. And then she stooped down and she kissed him. And Benjamin West in his autobiography wrote, that kiss is what made me a painter. John Maxwell says, those who believe in our ability do more than just stimulate us. They create us for an atmosphere in which it becomes easier to succeed in life. And the last point that Dan shares is to be assertive. And this is where I think a lot of times, well, not that we're any better on the other two, but a lot of times our culture is failing in this matter of being assertive today with children. To be assertive means that we offer correction without a critical spirit. Firm correction without a critical spirit that strips away uh, the value they feel um, about themselves. Um, and, I, you know, I, I just think that 
too often we are just so happy just to um, do anything we can to please our children. And so we don't offer the correction that they need. And then when we do offer it, too often is in a, in a critical tone. Um, Kevin Lehman writes in Have a New Kid by Friday, and he, he says several things. But one of them, he says, say things only once. If you have to keep saying things, you're just training your children to disobey. And then he says, sometimes you have to let reality be the teacher. And then never let B happen until A um, has been completed. I see that so often in young parents today where they'll say, well, you can have this if you do this. And then pretty soon the child has this and he hasn't done this. And that lack of consistency um, is, is setting that child up for bad behaviors and bad expectations the rest of their life. Here's a great quote from Kevin Lehman. An unhappy child is a healthy child. Children do not have to be happy all the time. It's not the law of the land. (laughs) They don't always have to have their way. Um, In fact, if they always get their way, you are training up a sociopath who thinks that the police the laws of the land, and everything else should just bend around them. From an early age, sometimes they need to be unhappy <laughs> to learn that life is not just about them being happy every minute of every day. And the last thing that I want to share from him this morning is identical twins have different fingerprints. Now, I'm not exactly sure what all he did with that, but here's what I'm going to do with that. You'll never have two children that you can treat the same. (laughs) Every one of them is very, very different. And that will annoy them to tears that you don't treat them identically. (laughs) But you cannot treat your children all the same because they're very different. And if you're going to raise up godly children, you have to treat them differently. Well... Um, in closing I'm going to try to summarize this real quick if you stop and think about Elkanah and Hannah dropping Eli off into the hands of Eli with two wicked sons growing up around them the question is what, what do you do when the church has become kind of corrupt John Wesley preached a whole sermon around that theme, and I'm going to take a couple of quotes of his, but you know, one of the paths that the church has chosen down through the centuries is to kind of become a lone ranger. And so in the midst of corruption of the church, you know, we become ascetics where we go off and isolate ourselves in the hills, or we become hermits, or we become monks. Um, Protestants sometimes have, have joined together in communes like the Hutterites or other groups of people, uh, but the, the fact is that holiness through seclusion doesn't impact the world for Jesus. And God wants us to be involved in our world and to make a difference. So we don't want to take the path of the Lone Ranger. We also don't want to take the path of the critic who just sits in church and criticizes everything because it's not just right. 
Because the critic is seldom involved in the solution. Very few critics I know are people that get their elbows, get their elbows in it and, and work to change something. They just stand around and criticize instead of getting involved and, and helping solve a problem. Elkanah and Hannah chose the path of faithfulness in the midst of imperfection. The church will never be perfect. Ever. Uh, you'll never find one. As soon as you do, if you go into it, it won't be perfect anymore. Um, and, you know, and so sometimes God, and, and sometimes you and I have seen people that seem to have the blessing of God in ministry when, when we find out later awful things, wicked things they were doing with their lives. And it did come crumbling down, and yet God seemed to be blessing, and people coming to know Jesus, and all kinds of things happening in their life right up until it all came crashing down. Um, so sometimes God chooses to bless, even where there is corruption, uh, for, a, for a season until he, he brings it down in his own time. The interesting thing is, if you look at Jesus, Elkanah was faithful, and he dropped Samuel off, even in that environment, and continued to pray for him. But Jesus, even knowing Judas would betray him, you know, made him a disciple. Jesus told people to uh, listen to the Pharisees and just be careful not to become like them because they didn't practice what they preached. (laughs) When you think of Calvin and Luther, they left the Roman Catholic Church, but they didn't actually leave it. They were pushed out. They were thrust out. And, and the Methodists, um, when John Wesley started his societies and all of that, they, they said, well, let's go start our own church. And John Wesley said, no, we will stay Anglican. That's what he was. And he said, we're going to remain firm and all of that. And they stayed in there, and he refused to have any services on Sunday or small groups or anything on Sunday. He said, you are to be in the Anglican church, and you are to receive communion there and all of that until the Anglican church said, you are not allowed in here. <laughs> That's when they went and started the Methodist Church at that point towards the very end of uh, John Wesley's life, and he wasn't very happy about that. So I I just want to say a couple of things in conclusion here. First, one thing to know. The church is not perfect. Um, Sometimes it's corrupt, but it is still the best thing God has in the world to redeem the world. And then three things to do. Pray like Hannah. Pray sacrificially. Pray submissively. Pray naturally. Prioritize whom you will impact. Eli made the biggest mistake of his life. And lots of preachers do the same thing. (laughs) They impact the church people and fail to impact their own family. Prioritize who you will impact with your life. Who are you going to make a difference on? Know that. Set it out. Think about that in your heart and in your life. Who am I... Who is God going to use me to impact and work on that? Thirdly, practice availability, affirmation, and assertiveness. 